trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. My fellow wrong thinker. No, wear that label with pride. I'm not calling you names. I'm not putting you down. I'm not trying to pigeonhole you into a particular corner. I want you to know that uh, this program exists for the purpose of helping you see through the official smokescreen that is intended to keep us from knowing the world as it really is, as well as living our lives in the most productive way that we can choose to live them. And that takes full-time effort. So, first of all, i got to tip my hat to you. That's good for you for being willing to break out of the matrix and uh, and be red-pilled. Now, of course, you probably already are red-pilled, or you wouldn't even be considering this. But nonetheless, come find courage. Come find camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers. And let's uh, let's all resolve to live the kind of life that we were born to live. Got some great stuff to share with you today. It's made possible by sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. Thought we could start today with the push for accountability for those who inflicted lockdowns on us. It's a lot of talk about this, and I guess this may explain part of the uh, shift that we're seeing in many members of the political class. Some of them just, you know, coming around to, well, you know, it's a good idea if we go ahead and lift some of these mask mandates or vax mandates or other lockdown things, you know, dining bans or gathering bans. Yeah, there's a lot of people seeing the light here lately. Gee, I, I wonder what it could be. Someone pointed out yesterday, who knew the cure for coronavirus was the president's approval rating dropping below 40 <laughs> percent. But it sure looks like there are some political goals that uh, that are definitely at stake. The public is getting fed up. And I think the worst part for me is that the people who really actively pushed for lockdowns, for mandates, for all of the, the failed COVID-19 policies. And when I say failed, I'm not talking about, well, they weren't even trying to do anything good. I'm talking about they did things that had little to no effect. The only effect that I've seen on, on mortality... Well, it may have saved some lives, all of that lockdown and destruction of businesses and personal lives and the toll on mental health. If it had any effect at all, and this is just according to one study, you're talking in the neighborhood of 0.2%. Well, Brian, how can we put a price on that? Well, that's the lives saved. Now, look at the lives destroyed, and you'll see that the balance is way off and, and that's the problem. How do you hold people accountable for this kind of thing? Because the very same people who push this endlessly, not just the people at the very top of the food chain, the, and, and I'm sorry, I, for, for Trump fans, this is going to be hard to hear, but Donald Trump was a big part of the problem because he first embraced the lockdowns. He deferred to Dr. Anthony Fauci. <clears throat> he was all in on vaccines. And by some accounts, still is talking about the miracle that occurred on my watch and, you know, getting the vaccines out there. So 
how do you hold these people accountable? They clearly see that there, there is, uh, there's a great deal of uh, anger beginning to build as people realize all of the, the sacrifices that were demanded of us and forced upon us were for naught. They were unnecessary. And it would be one thing if, if you could say, well, but, you know, no one really understood and nobody even warned us. I mean, how could we have known? This is just one of those things that happens. But it's not. There were many voices out there that were warning about what was happening and how this was being used to take advantage of an unknown or at least a novel virus. And whatever uncertainty there was, taking people's freedoms away, destroying their business to do or their ability to do business with one another, that didn't solve a thing. Now you start to see some of these folks backpedaling. Well, you know, we never really were for lockdowns. In fact, I think uh, the president's uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, was trying to make that case earlier this week. Well, you know, lockdowns were really a feature of the previous administration. Oh, they're trying to duck responsibility so badly. And, of course, this percolates on down to the state and to the local level. I mean, there are people who have very good reason to hang their heads in shame. And it would be very refreshing to see some of them at least say, you know what, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. I am so sorry. Here is my resignation. I will be stepping down from public service. But you don't see that. And I don't think these people perceive the, the, the degree of anger that is developing against them. I'm not saying that a lynch mob is coming to drag them out into the streets and settle the score. But some accountability would be a nice thing. And I think it would be the just thing to do. The question now is, will people like, and I'm just going to throw out there, for instance, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Do you think he's going to, uh, you know, acquiesce? I mean, uh, not Pierre, sorry. (laughs) I just named his dad. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of of Canada. I mean, he's, he's acting like Nicholas Ceausescu. Maybe he would be wise to consider how the Ceausescu saga ended back on Christmas Day, 1989. It was not a happy ending. But it seems like they're just inclined to double down. And, you know, we're just going to we're going to clamp down harder and we may lift some of these restrictions. But, uh, you know, the mask mandates stay for the kids. Why the kids? John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education pointed this out. Why is it with all these different mandates being listed? There are people still insisting, but the kids in school have to be masked. Why would they do that? Why would they keep them on the kids? And Miltimore says, because the kids are the hostages. Ooh, I know, you look at it in those terms and it's like, oh, that's, that's kind of chilling. See, I don't think the people who are in authority, the, the ruling class, I don't think they, they quite comprehend how angry the masses are becoming. And they're very fortunate. You know, to this point, things have been pretty peaceful. And I hope they stay that way. But I have to really wonder what is going to happen when it comes to, you know, the pushing for this. Actually, I'll be sharing this in the next hour, but there is an international group of lawyers that's come together and convened a grand jury for crimes against humanity in the name of COVID-19. 
You'll be interested to hear some of the names and some of the people that they will be, some of the names of who are involved and also some of the people that they're going to be investigating and possibly indicting. It's an interesting time. And there's a, there's a fair amount of risk, not just for you know the people in power who pushed these kinds of policies, but actually for all of us. So I hope you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm hopefully not ginning up more of that anger or telling you, you ought to feel angry too. I'm trying to point it out and to the best of my ability, encourage people, this is a time to proceed with great caution, if only because the emotions are running so high. And it may be tempting, you know, I've, I told you how I've struggled with, you know, wanting to say, I told you so. But really, we can't do that. We really can't do that. People whose eyes are starting to open don't need to feel our wrath or feel condemned because you were dumb enough to go along with this. They don't need that. Their eyes are starting to open. They're starting to realize we all got played. They're taking their first tentative steps towards changing their perspective. And this is a time to encourage them to continue that journey, even though it's going to be painful. This is, this is ripping off the Band-Aid from a particularly painful scar. But it's something they have to agree to do or have to want to do on their own. And I think it behooves us, and by us I mean the ones who are on the side of freedom, the ones who are on the side of respecting everyone's God-given rights. We've got to be very careful about the methods that we're using. Anger and vengeance cannot be our driving dynamics. They just can't. Unless we want to, you know, see French Revolution 2.0. I don't think we want to see that. I think it would, it would unleash terrible things not only on the people deemed responsible, but it would release un, un, unspeakable things on all of us. Now, having said that, I do believe that the people responsible need to be held responsible. I think they should be held criminally responsible. Separated from power, never allowed to participate in any type of authority whatsoever. I know, a guy can dream. But I also want to sound that note of caution. It's okay to feel angry. We all should feel a little bit angry, but don't. Don't wallow in it. Don't marinate in it. Let's take this in a productive direction. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. If you click on the link that I provide in my show notes, you will find it takes you directly to their website. And there is so much in terms of the kinds of food storage programs you can choose from. You want an individual, you know, like a bucket. These are buckets that are, you know, food that's, that's sealed up and ready to go. It'll store for 25 years if you do your part. In other words, don't set it out in the trunk of your car and leave it in the hot sun. But 25-year shelf life, you can grab do, do the grab-and-go buckets. You can do a whole full year's supply if you want to. It's all up to you. From the beginner to the very experienced uh, preparedness individual, you 
will feel much more peace of mind in knowing that you have something set aside for a rainy day. In fact, you'll feel great if you can create the equivalent of a small grocery store in your own home. Go to lifesavingfood.com see how it's done. They'll give you 20% off. They'll give you no sales tax and free delivery. Some nice incentive right there. Well, the push for accountability on the people who uh, inflicted the lockdowns on us has begun. But Jordan Schachtel is wondering, what will the next crisis look like? And I think he's got a good point here. Because with COVID mania getting stale, the ruling class needs another distraction. What's it going to be? Climate emergency? Cyber pandemic? War with Russia? I mean, it really seems like all of those things are on the table right now. After two years of robbing people, billions of people across the world of their lives and livelihoods, Jordan Schachtel writes, it seems the global ruling class has decided to roll back their prized biomedical security state. As these monsters try to wipe their hands clean of the greatest humanitarian catastrophe of the 21st century, he says, we must remain vigilant about the possibility that they will attempt to seamlessly pivot to the next crisis. That's in quotation marks. Far from accepting blame over their failures, this ruling class is gaslighting us with declarations of victory over a virus. Just as an aside, there is that that kind of uh, sense of, well, as we lift these these restrictions, it's it's almost as if, you know, we heard your cries and we're here to save you. Don't fall for it. Jordan Schachtel says, using data manipulation and outright falsehoods, These failed leaders want us to thank them for saving us from a virus. But the stats couldn't be more clear. COVID season peaked the past two years in late January, with or without mRNA shots, with or without lockdowns, with or without masks, or whichever nonsensical restriction they forced into action. We saw the same results. Nowhere in the country did any of these restrictions prove to have any benefit whatsoever. Two years of cures, supposed expert measures, and the like proved nothing but a giant sunk cost. We got scammed by Big Pharma, and much more importantly, we were unjustly robbed of our inalienable rights. And his point is the people in charge did nothing but contribute harm. Their public health measures only created a massive problem on top of the virus issue. First, it was the infamous two weeks to slow the spread, which turned into the endless rolling restrictions on human movement. The adoption of a new cloth mask wearing religion, a biosecurity state segregation system, and the creation of a new mammoth sized industry, which produces nothing but pure snake oil that turned in record profits thanks to the safety regime. Schachtel says over the last two years in the United States, our government waged both an anti-humanitarian and an economic war on American citizens. Now, on the federal level, the United States recklessly printed trillions of dollars devaluing the wealth of the vast majority of its citizens while enriching the connected elite. The Biden regime set the Constitution on fire and demonized those who refused to comply with their autocratic demands labeling detractors as enemies who are on the side of a virus. On the state level, power-drunk governors made the lives of their citizens a living hell 
destroying the hopes and dreams of millions of entrepreneurs, while forcing the working class to undergo an endless series of experimental injections in order to continue to feed their families. On the local level, school boards and academic institutions turned education into a prison sentence, using children as human shields to advance their political ideology. Schachtel says there's so much more to be said about this era, and the COVID mania era has left us with a rogues gallery of human rights criminals. Throughout the world, however, the people who have presided over the catastrophe would rather we stop talking about it as soon as possible, especially in the United States. You can imagine why, right? In America, the people in charge are looking for a distraction. And this is where Schachtel warns that distraction could come in many forms, perhaps a war with a great power or a coming climate crisis or even a cyber pandemic. That's one that they've been kind of wargaming themselves, so... You know, I'd watch out for that. The list of possibilities is endless, and he says it's important to remain vigilant about what they might throw at us next. Now, keep in mind, midterm elections are just months away in the United States. And now COVID COVID mania, rather, is deeply unpopular. I mean, the science didn't change, but the polls did. Politicians and the experts are trying to pretend they didn't steal two years of our lives with nothing to show for it. Their lack of remorse and honesty shows definitively that all they care about is staying in power and will do anything to remain in charge. Now he says, I hope to see the day that Anthony Fauci and Xi Jinping and also Bill Gates and Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, and this long roster of evildoers are legally held accountable for their incredible crimes against humanity. But he says, for now, it's time to remain on the lookout for the next trick coming out of their sleeves. I get it. For some people, that's going to sound like it's really paranoid, you know, another conspiracy that they're just going to gin something up. But keep in mind, there are people, and and I, I think there's ample evidence to point to, governing by crisis. Look, we all know people who thrive on crisis in their lives or at least people who always seem to be in a constant state of crisis. We go from one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next. Politicians are no different. And in a rare moment of uh, brutal honesty, do you recall when, I think it was President Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, said the quiet part out loud and said, well, you never let a good crisis go to waste. They understand crisis is the key to keeping the people in line. That's, you know, the equivalent of yanking our leash. Hey, something scary is happening. You need to remember why you need us. I was talking with a, with a neighbor last night, and, uh, you know, we, we weren't trying to sit there and scare each other, but just commenting on, you know, the rising costs of everything. He happens to be a builder, and so he's he's seeing this in ways that the rest of us might not encounter. You know, the cost of lumber. Holy smokes. It's it's really something. But everything's getting more expensive. And as, as we see inflation, you know, continuing to rise, and there's economic uncertainty, and there's, there's the possibility of, you know, war with Russia. There's, you know, again, natural disasters, you know, to, to contend with. There are a lot of things in commotion right now. You know, if, if only there was some book that could tell us about why this might be so, or how this fits into a greater plan somehow, if only. All right, sarcasm off. 
But the bottom line is that there really is a lot that, uh, that is uh, very unstable at this moment. Now, I don't mean to focus on the instability, just merely to point out that, look, we all see it. We all feel it. I can't think of a single person, regardless of their inclination, whether they, you know, consider themselves liberal, conservative, or somewhere in between, who doesn't look around and go, whew, this is messed up. Well, there's a lot we don't have control over, but the one thing that we do have absolute control over is what kind of individual we are going to be. And if tough times come, it may sound strange, but being a good individual makes the right kind of difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Okay, I don't want to sound too cynical, but isn't it curious how the science has suddenly changed in the space of a couple of weeks? Remember when we were told the science is settled? Masks work. Social distancing works. Vaccines work. All to slow the roll of COVID. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make light of anything here, but... I get the impression that we're supposed to just take these talking points from mainstream media outlets as if we were so many children being spoon-fed what to think by our supervisors. It's a little bit uh, it's a little bit disgusting. But one of the things that I can't help but notice and many other people are beginning to point out as well, isn't it amazing how the cure for COVID was apparently related to low approval ratings for the lockdowners? got a great article here. This was published on uh, ZeroHedge.com. It was originally published on QTR's Fringe Finance. I believe that's Quoth the Raven. Quoth the Raven says, I started out 2022 by predicting that capitalism and common sense would catalyze a massive pivot in how the mainstream media reports on COVID. I believed that the media would eventually start the process of pivoting from the hysteria and that politicians Understanding full well that they can't get reelected during midterms this year on a platform of locking people in their homes would follow. And at this point, he says, all I can say one month into the year is, holy crap, does it look like I was right. So far in 2022, innumerable U.S. states, in addition to countries like Sweden, Norway and Denmark, are lifting COVID restrictions. Connecticut and Delaware are planning on lifting school mask mandates by the end of March. Oregon officials have also announced that general mask mandates would be lifted March 31st. Even New Jersey and California announced that they would ease mandates in the coming weeks. And the media narrative has changed very quickly, too. Dr. Leanna Wen, columnist with the Washington Post and CNN medical analyst who has in the past gushed nonstop about following the government's COVID guidance, has now completely changed her appearance or her playbook for her appearances on CNN. In fact, on Monday of this week, she told CNN, there was and is a time and place for pandemic restrictions. But when they were put in, it was always with the understanding that they would be removed as soon as we can. And in this case, the circumstances have changed. Case counts are declining. Also, the science has changed. 
the responsibility should shift from a government mandate imposed from the state or the local district of the school. It would shift to an individual responsibility by the family who can still decide that their child can wear a mask if needed. Well, isn't that convenient? The science has changed. Now, in addition to sounding like she was erring on the side of freedom, of choice, a concept Democrats now may only be conveniently adopting ahead of midterms, she also took to Twitter to represent the other side of the COVID argument that days ago would have been written off as conspiracy theory. So Tuesday night, she tweeted, It can both be true, both that COVID-19 causes illness and harm, and also that its continued prioritization to the exclusion of other issues does too. It can both be true that masks reduce respiratory infections and also that they can have unintended harms. We must have an honest conversation about masking in schools. Two things can be true at once. Masks work to reduce transmission and they could cause harm to kids, especially young learners. There needs to be an ongoing risk-benefit analysis as there is for any intervention. And she also retreated this statement from David Rubin, policy director at CHOP, this is a moment <clears throat> excuse me, to start removing the restrictions that have been placed on kids because the risk to their mental health, learning loss, those types of things are now far greater than the virus itself. Well, she's right. We need to have an honest conversation. But the question is, why are we having it now? And why weren't we allowed to have it just a few weeks ago? In fact, where the blank was this woman six months ago? On New Year's, she was urging people to mask up while heading outdoors to watch the ball drop. Quote, make sure you're vaccinated and boosted. Make sure that you're wearing a mask even though it's outdoors. There were lots of people packed around you wearing a three-ply surgical mask. Now, in spring of last year, she was expressing fears about the U.S. not being able to reach herd immunity. In summer of last year, she was spreading the narrative, we can't trust the unvaccinated. Heading into fall, <clears throat> she was writing op-eds called Why COVID-19 Vaccines Should Be Required for All Americans. And now, only now that millions of vaccines have been distributed and the public's trust in the president and his COVID response is at an all-time lows, she has completely and totally changed her tune. I know, it kind of seems convenient. The left is also starting to talk about concepts they were completely silent on for the past two years, most notably natural immunity. Quotha Raven says it was less than a month ago that I wrote a piece arguing why I thought capitalism and common sense would end vaccine mandates in 2022. As part of that article, he says, I wrote that natural immunity would have to be, would soon have to be a talking point due to Omicron potentially acting as nature's vaccine. This is a quote from that article. First, after this Omicron wave passes, it should hopefully stir up a discussion about natural immunity that's 18 months overdue. Putting vaccine mandates aside, Omicron, given its extremely infectious nature and mild effects, may end up may wind up acting like nature's vaccine for almost everybody anyway. People will start to understand this concept and push harder on the science as to why it has been conveniently ignoring the topic of natural immunity, which has proven to be more robust than vaccination so far. And lo and behold, as The Hill pointed out this week, the CDC is all of a sudden starting to talk about natural immunity. 
A report published by the CDC on January 28th of this year finally acknowledges what many have suspected for a long time, that surviving COVID-19 provides excellent natural immunity and not only repeat infection, not only from repeat infection, but also to hospitalization and death for the Delta variant of COVID-19. So once again, we're seeing, we're, we're asking rather, where was this analysis during that Soviet-style campaign to roll out vaccines through the country over the last 12 months? Now we're seeing articles like this. Here's the headline. How Omicron upended what we thought we knew about natural immunity. But quoth the Raven says, we've known about the robust immunity provided by natural immunity for months already. Studies in mid-2021 were showing durable and robust immunity from natural immunity. According to a large collection of data and trials by Dr. Larry Istrell in his post, COVID-19 Natural Immunity, a deep dive, studies dating back to 2020 continued to confer that natural immunity against COVID was effective. And there's a link to that comprehensive collection of sources, which is worth examining more closely. Not the least of which is Dr. Fauci's own email exchanges from the inception of the panic in March of 2020. Now, even Senator Rand Paul was exasperated when he called the administration out for their odd penchant of not mentioning anything involving natural immunity. Speaking about Fauci's constant media appearances, Rand Paul said in fall of 2021, Hey, this guy, Fauci, has an opinion on baseball, hockey, Tinder, and Christmas. But he was asked the other day about natural immunity that you acquire after COVID-19. And he's like, Oh, really? That is an interesting thought. I never thought about that. I don't have an opinion because I haven't thought about naturally acquired immunity. And Rand Paul said, well, he has, and he is lying to you. The reason he won't bring up natural immunity is because it foils his plans to get everybody possible vaccinated. He thinks it might slow down vaccination. And I'm for people getting vaccinated, particularly people at risk. But the thing is, if you ignore naturally acquired immunity, that you're saying we don't have enough people. You have to force it on younger people. Now, Quatha Raven says, what then may have seemed more of a conspiracy theory that Fauci was purposely ducking the question of natural immunity, today starts to look like the most realistic scenario. And from here, he goes into the Freedom of Information Act email from Fauci in early 2020. We know it was on his mind as soon as the pandemic started. That begs the question of why we were so silent about natural immunity for so long. Now, this article goes on. I'm going to let you discover the rest of it. I mean, it's a a pretty lengthy write-up. But the one question that remains about the entire narrative and now this pivot is what was it all for? Was it to get the world vaccinated? And here Quoth the Raven says, well, forgive me if I'm skeptical. So, I hope you find it interesting. There's a wealth of information in this. You could spend the rest of the weekend just simply following all the different links contained in this particular article. And you'll find it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you want to subscribe, click the subscribe button and I will put a copy of my show notes in your email inbox every single day that I do this program. What about that pivot? Do you think it's just connected to the desire to stay in power? Am I cynical for suggesting? Heck yeah, that's exactly the reason. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A shout-out now for SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. This is a wonderful family-owned business in St. George, Utah. Been in operation since 1984. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners, and they are wonderful people in and of themselves. But if you or someone you know is into, uh, let's just say, quilting, do you know they sell and service handy quilter long-arm quilting machines? I mean, if, if you remember the days when Grandma and the ladies would get together and they would quilt and everything was stitched by hand and had to be oh so precise, I mean, it's, it's quite a thing. My mom is, is someone who has made a lot of quilts in her lifetime, and this is kind of a legacy thing. You know, to have one of Grandma's quilts, that's, that is quite, uh, quite an honor. But if you're interested in quilting, if you just want to get sewing machines, if, you, if you're looking for embroidery, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Click on that link, and uh, you will see that they have all the supplies. They have Cuddles fabric. They have the thread. They have the training to teach you how to use your sewing machine or your long-arm quilting machine to the greatest effect. And, of course, they service what they sell as well. Proud to have them as sponsors on the program. Well, if we're just supposed to take our uh, talking points from the media, as if, you know, we were so many little children, we would have a very, very distorted view of what was actually happening with the Canadian truckers. And there's a great uh, piece here. This is Barry Weiss shared this on her Substack account. It's actually by Rupa Subra... I'm going to try this name once here. Subramanya. Rupa Subramanya. What the truckers want. And I've been a big uh, advocate of the idea. If you really want to find out what's going on, you got to go to the source. Just to, to put it in perspective, um, a few years back when uh, Ammon Bundy and others occupied the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, the press had a lot of things to say about that, about what they were doing, and was this domestic terrorism? They, you know, there, there was a very concerted effort to, uh, to try to paint this in one way and one way only. But by going to the source, which I fortunately had the, uh, the opportunity of doing, we learned things were, were quite different than what was being reported in the media. Same thing here with the Canadian truckers. Rupa Subramanya says, For two weeks, the 18-wheelers, the semis, the tractors, the pickup trucks streamed through snow and ice into the center of Ottawa, the Canadian capital. They came from across the country, vaxxed, unvaxxed, white, black, Chinese, Sikh, Indian or and alone either with their wives or their, or their kids or by themselves, they huddled around campfires. They set up pop-up kitchens and tents with block captains doling out coffee and blankets. They honked and honked and honked. They blasted, we are the world, and everywhere you looked, someone was waving, was waving the maple leaf. It dipped to four degrees. The mayor declared a state of emergency. And they didn't budge. The truckers were scared of running out of gas, freezing to death in their little truck beds in the middle of the night. The city threatened to arrest anyone who brought it to them. And in response, hundreds of Ottawans did just that. The truckers stayed put. 
They were a city inside a city whose inhabitants, there an estimated 8,000 to 10,000, were outraged with a country that seemed to have forgotten that they existed. This past Sunday, as if to confirm that suspicion, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who has yet to meet with Freedom Convoy leaders, took a personal day. On Monday, during an emergency debate at the House of Commons, he called them a few people shouting and waving swastikas. Now, the author says, look, I live in downtown Ottawa within view of Parliament Hill, and I've spent the past 10 years or 10 days or so, rather, bundled up and walking around the protests. I have spoken to close to 100 protesters, truckers and other folks, and not one of them sounded like an insurrectionist, white supremacist, racist or misogynist. See, this is this is the advantage of going to the source. And here. Rupa gives us a number of different examples of the people that that he spoke to. They sound like Ivan, 46, who emigrated with his wife Tatiana from Ukraine to build a new life in New Brunswick in eastern Canada. We came to Canada to be free, not slaves, he said. We lived under communism, and in Canada, we're now fighting for our freedom. Like so many truckers, Ivan refused to share his last name. Probably a good idea, because the Canadian government is making lists right now. B.J. Dichter, a spokesman for the con- for the Freedom Convoy, is vaccinated. He estimates that many, maybe most of the truckers at the protest are, too. He says, I'm Jewish. I have family in mass graves in Europe. And apparently, I'm a white supremacist. Now, ostensibly, that's tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Ostensibly, the truckers are against a new rule mandating that when they re-enter Canada from the U.S., they have to be vaccinated. But that's not really it. The mandate is a moot point. The Americans have a similar requirement, and anyway, the vast majority of Canadian truckers, according to the Canadian Trucking Alliance, are vaccinated. CTA represents about 4,500 truckers nationwide. So it's about something else, or many things. A sense that things will never go back to normal. A sense that they're being ganged up on by the government, the media, big tech, big pharma. One thing was indisputable. The author says there was this electricity running through the streets and it felt like it could get out of control. It didn't help when a handful of protesters sported swastikas and Confederate flags or when GoFundMe shut down the convoy's fundraiser, announcing that donors had two weeks to reclaim their money before it was sent to established charities chosen by Freedom, uh, chosen by GoFundMe. Or when the cops started arresting locals, including the elderly. The author says it's really hard to capture how thoroughly Trudeau has misjudged the moment. This pandemic has sucked for all Canadians, he said Monday. As for the protest, it has to stop. Well, if he sauntered down to the mess of rigs on Wellington Street, across from the Parliament building, opposite the mall and the war memorial, if he talked to these people for a few minutes, he would understand. It will not stop. What's happening in Canada right now is bigger than the mandates. The convoy is spearheaded by truckers, but its message of opposition to life under government control has brought onto the icy streets countless, once voiceless people declaring that they are done being ignored. That the elites, the people who have zoomed their way through the pandemic, better start paying attention to the fentanyl overdoses, the suicides, the crime, the despair, or else... Kamal Panu is 33 years old, a Sikh immigrant and trucker from Montreal. He doesn't believe in vaccinations. He believes in natural immunity. 
He joined the convoy because COVID restrictions in the surrounding province of Quebec had become too much to bear. He said that he and his wife used to do their grocery shopping at Costco until the government decreed that the unvaccinated would be barred from the big box stores. Since then, their monthly grocery bill had jumped by $200. Now, before he said we didn't look at the price of what we were buying. Now, sometimes we put items back because we don't have that much money. Peter is 28 years old, a long-haul trucker from Ontario. Peter told the author that a divide had opened up all across the country. Pointing to the gleaming, ritzy condominiums near Parliament, he said he used to deliver the concrete stairs in those buildings. Since the cross-border vaccine mandate kicked in in mid-January, he's been out of work. He refused to get vaccinated, he said, because the whole thing had been so politicized and he couldn't be sure who to trust. Now, he refused to give his last name, he said, because he didn't want the government coming after him. And he wanted to work again. And the author says, I heard this over and over from the truckers, and it was not entirely crazy. The CTA, which has publicly criticized the Freedom Convoy, said in a January 29th statement addressed to the truckers in Ottawa, Your behavior today will not only reflect upon you and your family, but the 300,000-plus fellow Canadians that, like you, take great pride in our industry. Now, if you point that out to people like Peter, and the author says, and I did, that almost every doctor in the country had been vaccinated, it didn't matter. There was bodily autonomy and privacy and religious exemptions. And anyway, how could you know, or how could you know what the doctors were thinking? You couldn't trust the press or politicians, he said, recalling that in the fall of 2020, then-vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris expressed skepticism of any vaccine approved under President Donald Trump. Now they were being ordered to get this vaccine developed under President Donald Trump. Peter said, if you're not vaccinated, they treat you like garbage lying on the streets. Now, there's a host of other people that the author talks to. But the solidarity was infectious. Copycat (laughs) protests have popped up in Helsinki, Finland and Wellington, New Zealand and Nice, France. They plan to hit uh, Paris and Brussels. Truckers are organizing in the Netherlands, Australia, even the United States. But this is a very different story than what you would get if you simply went by mainstream media outlets, many of whom don't even want to talk about the protest. And those who do talk about it in the same terms that... Justin Trudeau talks about it. Why, it's just a bunch of racists and misogynists out there causing trouble for everybody. I think it's a good rule of thumb. When in doubt, go to the source. You'll have to check out the link I provide in today's show notes. You'll find it at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to uh, persuade you to consider the possibility that there is a very real battle going on for your mind. I don't want to take possession of your mind. I don't want to claim ownership of it, 
But I want you to recognize you have to stand up for yourself. You have to be willing to do the homework and and own your worldview. That can be tough in a time where disinformation and misinformation is the norm. We're going to talk a little bit about misinformation and disinformation and how uh, the official attempts to stamp it out really seem to be aimed more at controlling what you think or what you're allowed to consider than actually protecting your ability to think for yourself. What a time we live in. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Well, as unpleasant as the thought may be, I'm pretty firmly convinced we have a serious moment of decision approaching. Will America experience our authoritarian moment, or will we successfully defy the power seekers who are trying to impose it? This is an article by Jeffrey Folks on AmericanThinker.com. And it says, in the, Amer- in the authoritarian moment, Ben Shapiro warns about the rise of censorship, voter fraud, fake news, and other leftist tactics for seizing control. According to Shapiro, these authoritarian abuses have been especially prevalent since the start of Obama's second term, which, because it was uh, his second presidential campaign, Obama made the fateful decision to radicalize the Democratic Party and tie its future to a coalition of so-called marginalized or minority groups. Now, Shapiro prefers the term authoritarian, but he might just as well have used totalitarian, dictatorial, fascist, Stalinist, or any number of other terms. It's clear that something very disturbing is afoot in America that we've not seen in the past and that the progressive left intent on exercising and holding on to power is behind it. It's also clear from Shapiro's analysis that progressives are the enemies of ordinary Americans and that progressive values are opposed in every way to the thinking of decent, hardworking Americans who love family, country, and God. Now, these decent citizens are hated by the left simply because they're decent. They refuse to participate in the anti-capitalist, anti-democratic, anti-white, woke culture. Unfortunately, progressives have had the advantage. They're fervent, almost religious, or pseudo-religious in their commitment to change. They compromise a small, cohesive group similar to the Bolsheviks in revolutionary Russia. And like those revolutionaries... They believe that the righteousness of their cause justifies any sort of behavior, by any means necessary, as they say. And because they despise middle America and its citizenry, they are motivated by the strongest of emotions, hate. Nothing like this can be said of ordinary Americans who still believe in fair play, following the law. And this is why so many key institutions have fallen into the hands of progressives, including government, corporations, education, the federal bureaucracy, including elements within the FBI and IRS, entertainment, sports, even the church. As Shapiro has it, ordinary Americans are not focused on the culture war to begin with, and when they are, they're too polite to object. They lack the fanaticism and ruthlessness of the left, and so the left has been winning. Now, unfortunately, a lot of well-meaning conservatives fall into this too polite category. A lot of us have believed for too long that totalitarianism could never happen in America. We believed that our constitutional guarantees and system of checks and balances would keep us safe. 
We like to think that Antifa and Black Lives Matter are simply fringe groups that will have their day and then disappear. That the left's takeover of government is temporary. And that the midterm elections will restore constitutional government. But the problem is that after eight years of Obama and a year of Biden, authoritarianism has become deeply rooted. And I'm just going to add this as my own personal annotation. Trump may have slowed down the progress of it, but uh, look at the Republicans who were in power, who controlled Congress. And let's not pretend that this is strictly the left's problem. It's a two-party problem because it's a two-party system that, well, actually it's a one-party system masquerading as a two-party system. It just needs to be said. Now we're threatened with attempts by the left to seize permanent power through federal control of voting, through executive orders, and a massive expansion of federal spending. Senators Manchin and Sinema may have blocked Build Back Better for the time being, but even with the likelihood of a GOP victory in the fall, Democrats have another nine months and a lame duck Congress in which to have their way. We're stuck for another nine, or I'm sorry, another three years, sorry, another three years with a leftist president whose grasp of reality is questionable, but who seems to be in the hands of radical handlers. And what the left has in mind is chilling for it would transform America into an authoritarian nation similar to communist China, theocratic Iran, and oligarchic Russia. Like these dictatorships, America would then be governed by a permanent ruling class with no regard for our constitution or our traditions of liberty and democracy. We would live under the tyranny of one-party rule, bureaucratic abuses, ideological censorship, fraudulent elections, show trials, and political prosecutions, aspects of the totalitarian state, that are already too familiar. Ben Shapiro in his books and popular podcast is doing a service by exposing the breadth of these abuses and the dangers that lie ahead. Now, it's clear that he loves America and is dedicated to trying to save it, but the forces of authoritarianism are powerful, well-funded, and influential, and it's far from certain that conservatives will prevail. The November elections will be a good start, but even with Republicans in, the, in control of Congress, that leaves Biden in the White House for another two years. And it leaves an anonymous bureaucracy, most of it left-leaning, in control for nearly all of our government agencies and departments. And it leaves radicals in charge of our schools and colleges, cowardly CEOs too frightened to oppose the extortion of radical leaders, and even scientists too afraid to speak out on matters like climate change and biological sex differences. It leaves us with a mainstream media establishment still in the hands of mindless leftists spewing the party line on everything from national defense to abortion to so-called gay rights. It leaves mayors, judges, state legislators, state legislatures rather, governors and bureaucracies at the state and local levels all in the hands or still in the hands of the left. And all of this progressive leviathan is intent on transforming America into what amounts to a fascist state. Jeffrey Folk says, just to have a chance, we must constantly oppose authoritarianism through legal and peaceful means, through voting and political organization, and through writing and speaking out, and we must be a little less polite in our resistance. If we fail, this really will be the authoritarian moment, or more to the point, the establishment of a totalitarian communist state in America. 
Now, I get there where people are like, okay, so basically we all need to become John Birchers and fight against communism, right? I don't think he's saying that necessarily. And, and, and I got to say, I don't agree with the idea that if we just organize more politically and vote uh, smarter and write and speak out and be a little less polite in our resistance, that's what's going to turn the tide. I do believe that he sums up the problem quite well. I'm not so sure that I agree on the solution, and, and here's why. Political problems are just a, a, one facet of what we are facing. There is a spiritual sickness that runs throughout this as well. And this is, this is where we have to look beyond the political realm. You're not going to impose a spiritual solution through political policy. It's not going to happen. This is where you and I have to be willing to rise up. And when I say rise up, I mean simply defy those dictates that are trying to separate you from your freedoms. You've got to be willing to live your life, and I have to be willing to live my life as freely as possible in full view of people. That doesn't mean you need to be making speeches or writing, you know, editorials necessarily. It just means by example you show that I will live as a free person and I will settle for nothing less. And by the power of example, watch what happens as you draw people into your gravitational field and pull them along with you. For a lot of folks, all they really need to do is see that it can be done. And then they find the courage to stand up and do it for themselves. Now, does that expose you to the possibility of ridicule or shame or maybe even, you know, cancel culture or some other kind of sanction? Yeah, it absolutely does. Freedom has always had a degree of risk in that way. But you start with the individual, and it's a lot harder to co-opt a particular movement than if we try to start from the top down. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very proud to have Heather as one of my sponsors. If you would like to reach out to her, there's a couple of ways you can do this. And this is for anybody within the state of Utah, anybody looking for a home loan, VA loan to traditional loan to reverse mortgage, you can call Heather at 435-703-4522. If you're traveling down Bluff Street in St. George, stop into 619 South Bluff. That's where you'll find Patriot Home Mortgage. You can also click on the email link, which I provide in my show notes. That'll take you directly to Heather's email. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, as... uh, I got a couple of different thoughts here as, as far as uh, the uh, the American thought police, as fantastical as it may sound, the official effort to slam the door shut on free speech really does appear to be ramping up immensely. And I mean just in the last few days. If you haven't uh, read the Department of Homeland Security's memo about misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, DSM, kind of sounds a lot like, you know, WMD, right? 
This this is something they are preparing to go after, trying to establish the justification and get the trial balloons out there floating so people are used to seeing this and familiar with these terms. Got an article here from Kyle Scheidler about how the Department of Homeland Security is becoming America's thought police. Subtitled, The Transition from Tracking Terrorism to Chasing Thought Crime Has a Major Advantage. It exonerates U.S. counterterrorism officials from the meddlesome job of catching actual terrorists. He says the Department of Homeland Security, which under the Biden administration, routinely lets watch-listed terrorists cross the southern border unmolested, and which approved entry into the United States for Colleyville Synagogue hostage-taker Malik Fasil Akram, despite his being known to British authorities as a terror risk, has taken upon its broad bureaucratic shoulders an even more challenging job, stopping the flow of MDM. Now, MDM isn't the latest flavor of fentanyl produced by the communist Chinese regime for sale to Mexican drug cartels, and now the leading cause of death for Americans between ages 18 to 45. No, MDM stands for Mis, Dis, and Malinformation, the latest government acronym from which you must be protected. Department of Homeland Security's latest summary of terrorism threat to the U.S. homeland, released on Monday, has much to say about the dangers of Americans' minds being polluted with MDM, and curious little to say about actual terror threats. MDM is a term developed by the Department of Homeland Security Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, to replace the old-fashioned phrase foreign influence. Now, let us caveat that the U.S. government does indeed have a responsibility to monitor and to identify foreign influence operations. This was the remit of the Reagan-era Active Measures Working Group, which worked tirelessly to identify Soviet lies being spread to undermine the United States' global standing in the world, and then countered them with the truth. But under the latest iteration, DHS is no longer concerned solely with enemy lies spread abroad, but increasingly with information spread by domestic threat actors. Read, American Citizens. And no longer are they merely concerned with disinformation, false material spread to manipulate an opponent, but with misinformation, which DHS considers information that is false but not intended to cause harm, and then malinformation, which is information which is true, but the government considers harmful anyway. Now this raises the question of who put a government intelligence and enforcement agency in the position of declaring not only what is true or false, but also determining whether the information is good or harmful for consumption by free citizens. Of course, no law prohibits American citizens of spreading information of any kind, whether true or false. Now, ironically, the DHS-MDM effort is itself a result of disinformation created in the tumult of the Russian collusion hoax in response to lunatic assertions assertions that the Russian government had somehow thrown the 2016 election to Donald Trump through the use of a handful of Facebook ads. The Department of Homeland Security certainly has no remit to determine what information its bureaucrats regard as harmful for American ears to hear. And why are government efforts to counter information appearing in what is supposed to be a bulletin aimed at countering terrorism? 
U.S. intelligence increasingly has asserted that the cause of terrorism isn't groups or individuals seeking to achieve identifiable political ends through criminal violence and intimidation, which, by the way, that's the legal definition of terrorism. Rather, U.S. counterterrorism gurus insist that terrorism springs from springs fully formed from mis-, dis-, or malinformation adrift in cyberspace, like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. Now, Scheidler says they did not arrive at this conclusion all at once, but rather over a period of two decades during the global war on terrorism, which over the years became defined as domestic, not global, a social problem, not a war, and ultimately not about terrorism at all. You know, I don't want to sound vindictive here, but I think we at least need to pause for a moment to thank our good friend George W. Bush for giving us the Department of Homeland Security. We really owe the Bush family a great, great debt of gratitude for all that they've done to separate us from our freedoms. All right. Scheidler says the transition from terrorism to chasing thought crime has a major advantage. It exonerates U.S. counterterrorism officials from the meddlesome job of catching actual terrorists. He says for years, the U.S. government security apparatus insisted that with a little more money and even more constant surveillance, they could nip the terrorism problem in the bud. But more surveillance only brought more stories of terrorists that the government knew about in advance, yet failed to stop, which was embarrassing to say the least. If literally anyone sufficiently marinated in ideas the government doesn't like might turn out to be a terrorist, how can federal law enforcement be held responsible for dropping the ball on any specific plot? Isn't policing the ideas themselves a better use of government's time and money? Covering thought policing under the rubric of counterterrorism, well, it has another advantage, too. It changes the idea from whether a given idea, or changes the discussion, rather, from whether a given idea is either true or false to whether it's safe or dangerous. Have concerns about election integrity, COVID-19 mandates, or school boards? Well, you better shut up. Those kinds of ideas are inspiring to terrorists. And, of course, the DHS Bulletin provides absolutely no evidence or citation to affirm its claims regarding what motivates these extremists. One is only left with vague assertion, backed by claims of secret intelligence, which ought not be satisfying to any serious interlocutor. But it's certainly curious that, according to Homeland Security, terrorists always seem to be most interested in topics on which Joe Biden is polling poorly and on which his administration faces growing criticism from the broader American electorate. Again, this is from Kyle Scheidler, Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy. You know, I don't know, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to, to, to drive it home anymore without, you know, just beating the drum. And, and I don't want to... I don't want to impose fear or get people feeling fearful about, uh, you know, what is to come. But this is something we cannot be ignoring. We cannot turn our backs on this and pretend, well, you know, but I'm a good person. and they'll, Surely they'll recognize that. If it's getting around to where your ideas are being policed for whether they are acceptable or not, you're in trouble. You've already lost something really precious. And I think it's it's not going to be a coincidence here that uh, the, the people who are going to be, you know, most clearly in the crosshairs 
is anyone who isn't willing to just shut up, bow their head, and just go along. So you may think you can sit this one out, but uh, you can't. As my friend Jim Lorenz used to say, go ahead, go back to sleep. Your government will wake you when it wants you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of this growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, I publish them every single day that I do this program, and I encourage people to sign up for them. All it's going to cost you is your email address, which I will not share or will not sell to any other interested third parties. It's just strictly between you and me, but I'd be happy to drop a copy of this in your email inbox every morning when I do the show. There aren't a lot of silver linings uh, that go along with the lockdowns and the economic destruction that has followed them, but it is good to look on the bright side. And there are some silver linings. In fact, I'm looking at an article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. The silver lining in single-income families... Now, that may seem kind of counterintuitive, especially as you're watching prices go higher and higher and higher. How can any family survive on one income? You know, I think back to, to a time when my family was, was actually surviving strictly on my income, and we did it. There were some sacrifices that had to be made. This was, this was a long time ago. This is, you know, more than 20 years ago. But it was so good to have my wife there with our kids during those formative years you know it it there were some real blessings that came from that but since that time it's it's you know the norm is you know everybody in the house works everybody's got to do their part and i don't see that changing anytime soon however there are some people who have found themselves back in that single-income family situation annie holmquist says there have been countless repercussions from covid so far And it's likely that more are on the way. Most of these repercussions are negative, but every once in a while, there's one with a silver lining. She says, I saw one of these the other day while on Twitter, where Scott Adams of Dilbert fame shared a chart showing the change in private employment over the last year. Most drastic and the most drastic and the first decline was the drop that occurred from December 2021 to January 2022. In December, there was an increase of 776,000 jobs in the non-farm private employment sector. While in January, there was a decrease of 301,000 jobs in that same sector, revealing a sharp turnaround in the trend. Too hard to find employees, Adam speculated. What's even more intriguing, however, is a response Adam received from a man named Mark Schneider. There is a shortage of people, especially professionals, Schneider wrote. I think the pandemic may have triggered a return to single-income families. And she includes the the tweet in, in this article. Annie Holmquist says, and there's the silver lining. Perhaps the pandemic is causing a pendulum swing back toward a better balance between work and home life something more conducive to successfully raising children and supporting marriages. 
The theory that women are leaving the workforce and staying home was confirmed by a recent Washington Post article, which explains that although the U.S. added nearly 500,000 jobs in January, the gender divide is very evident in that growth for the more than one million women who left the workforce at the start of the pandemic and still haven't returned to it. Until January, women hadn't seen such low labor force participation since the late 1980s or early 1990s. That's according to Emily Martin, a vice president at the National Women's Law Center. What This is what she told the Wall Street Journal. Now, while the folks at uh, Washington Post greet this decline of women in the workforce as a tragedy, Annie Holmquist says, I think it's a wonderful thing for the members of my sex. In recent decades, the modern woman has been expected to hold down a job in the workforce. Society treats her as a loser if she stays home, cooks the meals, cleans the house, and raises and educates the children. And because of this, many bright, ambitious young women forego the joys of marriage and a home, spending their days toiling in an office, or they try to hold down a job and raise a family and maintain a home, growing increasingly stressed as they go, because too many responsibilities leave all of them compromised in practice. It seems the women's movement, which was supposed to liberate the female sex from the confines of her life, has only served to put her in a tighter straitjacket. Now, Annie Holmquist says, author G.K. Chesterton predicted this constriction long before it bound contemporary women hand and foot in his 1910 book, What's Wrong with the World? He explained how women are capable multitaskers in so many things, cooking, telling stories to children, thinking deeply and lending new insights to life. Men are unable to do such a wide variety of things simultaneously as their wives can do because men are forced to be single-minded experts in the job they hold outside the home. Chesterton contrasts this role of a man with that of a woman. Quote, she cannot be expected to endure anything like this universal duty if she is also to endure the direct cruelty of competitive or bureaucratic toil. Woman must be a cook, but not a competitive cook, a schoolmistress, but not a competitive schoolmistress, a house decorator, but not a competitive house decorator, a dressmaker, but not a competitive dressmaker. She should not have one trade, but 20 hobbies. She, unlike the man, may develop all her second bests. End quote. Now, in reality... Annie Holmquist says, the woman who stays home is not confined, but is really the one free to fly and pursue all kinds of opportunities to engage in important work. And Chesterton goes on to clarify the point further. Quote, this is what has really been aimed at us from the first in what is called the seclusion or even the oppression of women. Women are not kept at home in order to keep them narrow. On the contrary, they were kept at home in order to keep them broad. The world outside the home was one mass of narrowness, a maze of cramped paths, a madhouse of monomaniacs. It was only by partly limiting and protecting the woman that she was enabled to play at five or six professions and and so come almost as near to God as the child when he plays at a hundred trades. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, you can call me a misogynist if you wish. But I tend to agree with Chesterton. And I tend to think that the million women who have not returned to work since the pandemic might have come to the same insight by way of their own experience. She says women are not dumb. The pandemic gave them a taste of what Chesterton calls sanity. 
a sanity which allowed them to find true fulfillment in the broad nature of the home. And they've discovered that they don't want to leave it. Such a flight from the workforce and back to the home is bound to have life-changing repercussions for the whole country. It strengthens marriages when women are freed to maintain happy homes for their husbands and for their children. Such freedom also leads to a more active counterbalancing of the propaganda machine at school and gives parents a chance to educate and influence their children in more wholesome and healthy ways. Now, she says, granted, relying on a single income may not be possible for everyone at a time when prices are rising rapidly through inflation. However, one can even argue that the family budget will not suffer much when one considers the elimination of costs associated with the woman's employment. Gas, lunch money, wardrobe, child care, etc., combined with a new reason to develop the skill of a more intentional frugality. The world desperately needs sanity. Why not encourage more of it by bringing more mothers home? Ooh, I can almost hear howls of outrage at the idea. What do you think a woman's place is in the home? What, barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen? No, wow. Now, I see what Annie Holmquist is pointing out here. You know, and, and there's a, there are quite a few of us who were not latchkey kids until, you know, we were into our, you know, early teens. But I remember there was, a, there was a huge shift that took place, at least in my own family. There came a point, my dad had, had cancer when I was about 11 years old. And as he was <clears throat> recovering from that cancer, we went through a period of time where he wasn't able to work or was only able to work sporadically. And my mom, who had always been this integral part of our lives growing up, Suddenly, she had to be out there in the workforce, and she had to, to have a part. To, I think she, she may have had a full-time job, you know, as a, as a, a secretary to, to help us make ends meet. And I'm not blaming, you know, the fact that mom went to work. This is, this is when things fell apart. But there was a definite shift in our family when mom was no longer this, this constant force there at home, you know, watching out for us kids. I suspect that there are other stories that, that, that will line up with this as well. Honestly, with inflation going at the pace that it's going right now, I don't know how a family could make it on a single income. I think it can be done. But I also think people have to be, uh, you got to be pretty tough in order to tighten your belt and choose to live at a lower standard of living than you deserve. Because isn't that how we really feel about it? You know, I deserve this much house. I deserve this nice of a car. I deserve clothing that shows that I'm a success. And we probably do. But man, I admire the people who find the courage to sacrifice to make sure that uh, home needs are being met as well as whatever material needs. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Final segment of the show today. There's a link that I'm providing in today's show notes that I'm going to encourage you to click on. This is a fairly lengthy, fairly involved story, but it's about an international group of attorneys who have convened a grand jury to investigate COVID-19 crimes against humanity. 
Now, I don't know if you feel like that's just too strong a language. Oh, my goodness. What are we trying to do? Are we trying to gin up some outrage here? No, I think it's it's more a matter of trying to seek justice. This is from the uh, website humansbefree.com. And it talks about a group of attorneys from around the world convening a model grand jury in Germany in order to provide testimony against various, or from various expert witnesses attesting to the crimes against humanity committed amidst government responses to COVID-19. Now, these various witnesses consist of professors, doctors, journalists, military, and government officials who testify regarding a number of topics, including Project Dark Winter, psychological operations, economics, eugenics, and a whole lot more. I hope you take a look at it. It's pretty fascinating stuff. I don't know if it's going to you know, have legs or not. But I kind of like the idea of these these folks who implemented and who who forced so much of this unnecessary suffering on people all over the world. I like the idea that these people are going to be looking over their shoulders and, and maybe looking over their shoulders for the rest of their lives. Knowing that uh, the, the people caught on to it. I think that's uh, that's something that uh, has to happen. And in, in order for justice to take place, they need to be held accountable, as in criminally accountable. So I wish these guys luck. I'll let you check it out for yourself. Shifting back over here, I want to talk about cancel culture, how it's never been about righting actual wrongs. And the Joe Rogan case has been a really great example of this. I I was happy to see Kit Knightley from OffGuardian.org has a great article here about how Joe Rogan shows us the real purpose of cancel culture. It's to intimidate the rest of us into chanting in unison, right? Kit Knightley says, Joe Rogan has just been canceled again. It's not about COVID misinformation this time. Now, no, he's now he's racist. Some enterprising young mind combed through 13 years and hundreds of episodes of the Joe Rogan experience and cut together about 20 instances of Rogan using the N-word. Now, this video was shared by award-winning musician India Ari and used to explain her pulling her music from Spotify's platform in protest of Rogan's continued presence there. Now, Rogan claims these clips are all taken out of context in his recent apology video. None were ever intended to be racist. And this well may, may well be true, but we can't check for ourselves because Spotify removed all the episodes. These important bits of context naturally were removed from the viral video. Besides, it's since been said, context doesn't even matter. And you know what? Kit Knightley says they're right. The context doesn't matter. Perhaps the intention doesn't even matter. What matters is why now? Some of these clips are over 12 years old, and yet there have never been any calls to boycott Spotify or cancel his show until just the last few days. This is a good question. So were they not racist before, or was everybody just okay with this racism? Or could there be something else behind this? But why bother pausing the hate fest to ask questions, right? The only message that matters now is Joe Rogan is a racist now. And the streaming giant Spotify's pulled over 70 episodes of his show from their platform as a result. Now, of course, the cyber torches and internet pitchforks coming for Joe Rogan is nothing new. Having preached the tenets of a healthy lifestyle, promoted alternate COVID treatments, and invited dissenting experts onto his show, Rogan has obviously been on the establishment's hit list for a while. 
This reached a peak in January when aging rock royalty Neil Young gave Spotify an ultimatum. Remove Joe Rogan's misinformation or take my music down. Now, despite adding a Weasley disclaimer to the beginning of the podcast episodes, Spotify essentially sided with Rogan probably because they couldn't be seen to bow to that kind of pressure and because they figured most people had forgotten Neil Young was still alive. In short, and despite other musicians like Joni Mitchell adding their voices to Young's, the gambit failed, and Rogan remained on air. Then, just last week, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki added fuel to the fire by announcing the president would like to see more done by tech companies to limit the amount of misinformation on their platforms. Within days of that press conference, the viral video compilation of racial slurs had appeared. And Rogan is now a racist as well as an anti-vax COVIDian or whatever they're calling us these days. Now, he's also an object lesson in the entire purpose of cancel culture and extreme identity politics in general. Kit Knightley says, I don't know how many of our readers are gamers or remember Half-Life 2, but go with me here. Around two-thirds of the way through the game, you encounter giant insect-like aliens called antlions. And soon afterward, get a special attack. The ability to paint enemies with pheromones, which cause an unending swarm of antlions to attack them. Of course, the giant insects don't know why they are attacking your enemies. They don't sympathize with your aims. They're not capable of understanding your plans. All they know is the chemical signals driving them to fits of rage. Now, Kid Knightley says, you probably don't need me to explain the metaphor. This is the purpose of rampant hysterical identity politics. You paint your enemies as a target and then watch the mindless swarm do its work. As much as cancel culture is portrayed as a totally organic process without any top-down control, this is simply not the case. It's almost never organic, and it's almost always contrived. If you need to be persuaded of that, simply look at who's immune to it. Both Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau have got enough racist or at least racist-seeming scandals to get them canceled, if the process really was anything but a covert tool of maintaining the status quo. And yet still they stand. To show how selective it is, we have examples of the exact same behavior eliciting complete opposite responses depending on the person involved. So, for instance, when Gina Carano compared the hatred of the unmasked and unvaccinated to the way Jews were treated in Nazi Germany, she lost her job and her agent. When Margaret Hodge, Hodge rather, made similar comments about Corbyn's Labor Party, well, there was no rebuke at all. It seems only people outside the establishment or promoting the wrong opinions are ever in real danger of falling victim to organic cancellation. Indeed, one can be a totally white-bred member of the entertainment industry for years and be safe in the knowledge your racism slash homophobia slash misogyny will never really come to life, or to light, rather. But step out of line on the wrong subject at the wrong time, and you will suddenly find yourself facing a tidal wave of past sins about to wash over you. Look at Donald Trump, an insider to the bone when he was just a billionaire reality TV host. But then he ran against Hillary and became literally Hitler overnight. Rogan is a perfect exemplar of this phenomenon. 
spend years go spend 10 years going on about legalizing weed and taking DMT and talking about martial arts and you can say the n-word as much as you want nobody notices or cares but the minute you even mildly interrogate an important media narrative then the mob organically remembers oh you were racist the whole time the evidence of contrivance is obvious Simply ask yourself, where did this video compilation of racial slurs actually come from? Who made it? Rogan's uses of the N-word are not new. They're all several years old from 23 separate episodes, all multiple hours long. And there are almost 1,800 episodes of the show to plow through if you decide to go searching. So making this video is at least two days' work of simply watching the episodes, and that's assuming you know where to start looking. And that's before editing or trying to make it go viral. And this was all done on a whim by some bored pro-vaxxer. Does that sound likely? Far more likely is that it was created and deployed to discredit Rogan's COVID questioning without having to engage with COVID skeptic evidence or arguments. Now, it's possible the video may have already existed before the current controversy. After all, why create this climate of stifling sensitivity if you don't have the tools to use it? Perhaps most authors, actors, comedians, etc. have a tape in the vault somewhere. A database of racism, homophobia, or transphobia just waiting to be released when needed. A collection of neocompromats that works best as a deterrent, but is always ready to be loosed if needed. Those people who do step too far out of their box are taken down and act as an example to others ensuring everyone on the public stage is singing from the same hymn sheet. Because that is what cancel culture is for. Man, I just, I love the writers at offguardian.org. And Kit Knightley is uh, an exceptionally talented writer. Check out this article for yourself. It's included in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.